you are listening to It's All Relative. Today's case has been a bit strange to research because of some prescient mirroring of my own life. I have a lot of sympathy for the perpetrator and his situation, more so every day as my physical condition declines. This episode is a bit late due to these issues. Dear listener, never get pneumonia. Sympatico or no, the perpetrator here went further in his descent than anyone should go. Before Ted Kaczynski, the Tsarnev brothers, or Timothy McVeigh, damn, be wary of names starting with the letter T. Before the shoe bomber, Richard Reed, there was the Mad Bomber of New York. Here's Tennessee Ernie Ford to set the mood, and I will meet you on the other side. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. I was raised in the cane break by an old mama line. Can't know a high tone woman make me walk the line. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. If you see me coming, better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel If the right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I To the company store. In 1924, Lithuanian immigrant George Malauskas built a house in Waterbury, Connecticut for his wife and three children. George was a stoic yet vigorous man who worked as security in a lumberyard. This was not an easy job. Starting in 1920, lumber prices had started dropping. This sounds like a good thing, but the result was that many lumber companies could no longer afford to create lumber. Companies were absorbed into conglomerates, and many companies closed. This created a lumber shortage, and in turn, created a niche for hoodlums to steal and then resell lumber. At night, George not only had to watch out for thieves, he actually had to fight off gangs who were coming to steal the lumber. I could find no reason for George and Anna to immigrate to the U.S., nor exactly when they arrived, but the turn of the 19th into the 20th century saw a lot of political upheaval and shifting economies that spurred many people to emigrate to America. Southern Connecticut became a refuge for the Irish, Germans, and Eastern Europeans. So it's no surprise that the Malauskas family settled in Waterbury, just outside of Hartford. What is and isn't a bit strange is that George's wife, Anna Malauskas, never found a place to fit in. On the one hand, New Englanders put up the usual hue and cry about foreigners ruining their way of life. Nice to know things have changed, isn't it? Anna refused to learn English, a huge sin, I know. 
so they're not accepting her into the fold, so to speak, is understandable, even if it's a shitty thing to do. But Waterbury housed a decent-sized pocket of Lithuanians. You would think she could find some sort of a place there. Michael Cannell wrote in his book about the Mad Bomber, quote, The Waterbury Lithuanians were only a generation removed from the gypsy superstitions of home, end quote. I'm honestly not sure if you could make a more ignorant statement. However, whether really her demeanor or just an easy stereotype to inhabit, Anna seemed completely set on being as alien as possible. So, for this case, I will refrain from pointing out all the problems in that quote. As, for example, in the case of Anna Malauskas. One day, the neighborhood children were daring each other to go up to the Malauskas home and peek in the windows. Anna came running out of the house, spewing Lithuanian and pointing a wand at the children, or at least the kids thought it was a wand. Their worst fears were confirmed when one of the girls contracted mumps the very next day. Anna's children consisted of two daughters, Anna and May and George, the youngest and only son. The daughters went to basic labor for work and never left the family home to make a life of their own. Anna, the mother, doted on George, her son, and she raised her daughters to pamper him. When Anna, the mother, died, she left her children with a don't-mix-with-outsiders mentality and an understanding that George, the son, always got what he wanted. By 1929, young George was now using the anglicized surname of Metesky. He had completed a tour with the Marines and was employed by the Bronx location of Consolidated Edison Company as a boiler wiper. Despite the name, wipers are generally journeymen or junior engineers. They are responsible for keeping the equipment in good repair and working smoothly. On September 5, 1931, there was some sort of accident involving one or more boilers and George was injured. After this accident, George was unable to work, so he spent 26 weeks on what they called sick pay and is akin to today's disability insurance. George's lungs were damaged from the accident. Based on the description, he either ended up with emphysema or chemical pneumonia. George says he was immediately coughing up blood, which developed into pneumonia after a couple of weeks. But George also says that the pneumonia developed into TB, and look, having a pre-existing lung condition can definitely leave your defenses down against other lung conditions. Generally, though, pneumonia does not bring on tuberculosis. That's a whole different bacterium. In any event, George says that he went into a sanitarium, it's kind of like a long-term hospital, and he was treated for TB. Sorry, I'm still trying to figure out how he got TB. I'm actually wondering if he went to the sanitarium based on his symptoms and actually contracted TB while he was there. The damn things were set up in the late Victorian period specifically to treat TB, but there was no actual cure until streptomycin in the mid to late 1940s. Sanitariums also took on people with other similar lung conditions, many of which were just as contagious as TB. In any event, his claims to Con Ed were eventually denied, and they suggested he try for the state disability fund. And for those of you thinking all his making claims due to his work accident are normal, I do not know how to stress that this was all a fairly new concept. Industrial companies were notorious for working their employees to death, or until they couldn't work anymore, and then offer no compensation for the loss of income. In 1911, 148 people were killed in a fire at the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory in Greenwich. 
because the owners had locked them all in to ensure they were working, not slipping out to take breaks or leaving early. What is even more unconscionable is that this kind of tragedy was par for the course in Victorian and Edwardian America. I'm guessing that the reason there was any subsequent health and safety reform was that Tammany Hall saw the political clout they would gain by promoting workers' rights. Tammany Hall, big political boys club in New York, they got involved and things began to change in New York. Then, when the Depression hit, Roosevelt enacted more workers' programs to compensate for the many, many people who came to be out of a job. George's claims were denied. He moved back to Connecticut with his sisters and applied for state workers' compensation in 1934. Unfortunately, this was well after the time restriction, and that claim was also denied. By 1936, he had exhausted all of his appeals. George spent his time being waited on by his sisters, having a power trip over his neighbors and their lodgers. They let out the top floor of their house and driving to Manhattan in his Daimler. Evidence of his sister's regard. I mean, it's a Daimler. As time drew on, he spent more and more time writing and banging away in his garage. No one knew what he was doing in there, not even sisters Anna and May. They wouldn't deign to peek or ask. On November 18, 1940, a worker at the Manhattan Con Ed plant found a wooden toolbox on a windowsill. He opened the box to find a length of pipe, capped on either end and wrapped in paper. He picked up the pipe and unwrapped the paper. A message was written on the paper in pencil and in block letters. Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. Under the penciled letters was an additional message, this time written in gray gunpowder. There is no shortage of powder, boys. Ten months later, a pedestrian found a pipe and a red sock in the middle of the street, four blocks from Con Ed headquarters. Neither bomb exploded and neither attracted much attention. Both bombs could easily have entered into obscurity, particularly after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. From Michael Cannell's book, Incendiary, quote, Hours after Pearl Harbor, the bomber wrote letters to nine prospective targets, Radio City Music Hall, the Roxy Theater, the Astor Hotel, among others, announcing that revenge would be postponed but not forgotten. I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. End quote. The letters could have marked this bomber as memorable if it weren't for all the other crazy things happening in New York and the rest of the U.S. now entering World War II, especially since the notes ended with the letters F.P., telling everyone who would listen that this was the same guy both times. But frenetic years passed and the bomber kept his word giving people absolutely no reason to keep those two dud bombs in their memory. March 29, 1952, well past the end of the war, which was in 1945, for those of you who aren't up on your history, a bomb inside a cigarette urn outside a bar in Grand Central Terminal exploded. The police thought it was a prank. The New York Times did report on the bomb, but it only received three paragraphs deep within the pages of the newspaper. Four weeks later, another bomb exploded in a phone booth at the public library. This one bore many similarities to the earlier Grand Central bomb. Amazingly, neither bomb hurt anyone. Then, in August, another phone booth exploded, this one 
at the back of the Grand Central Terminal. Again, no one was hurt. But this bomb left similar traces as the other two, pipe pieces, shell casings, and of particular note, a partially dissolved cough drop, all the same brand. A few weeks after that, yet another phone booth, this one at Con Ed, exploded during the night. Only the night watchman knew it had gone off. This was a bigger bomb than the others, but it did relatively less damage. This was followed by a suspicious package being delivered to the Con Ed personal director. This was an overstuffed manila envelope with a capped-off pipe inside. This bomb had yet to explode, and the bomb squad knew it would be very useful to deconstruct it rather than set it off. An officer came into the mailroom and carefully x-rayed and jiggled the bomb. Yes, you heard me. He jiggled it. To see if it could be set off by movement. Oh my god. Then he placed the bomb in a basket woven from steel cable they called the envelope. He put the envelope in the envelope and carried it out to a carriage, also made of steel cables called Big Bertha, that would carry the bomb to a location where they could take the bomb apart. Once it got to the lab, the squad discovered, instead of gunpowder, the bomb contained sugar. But the design was the same as the others, and the handwriting on the envelope was the same. Distinctive block letters. So this bomb must have been meant to scare only. No fingerprints, though, and a white plains postmark. In between bombs, the police are doing their best to track this guy down. They figured the culprit was a disgruntled employee, possibly an unhappy customer. Not to pour rain on your parade, NYPD, but barring the completely crazy person, wouldn't those be the only two options? The cops go to Con Edison and ask them to go through their files. They were especially to look for the handwriting that matched FP's. Some of his letters were very distinctive. After the sugar bomb, Con Ed came back with a possible perpetrator, a 56-year-old man who had been fired for theft after 20 years of employment. He had been cleared of involvement by a jury, but he had a pending lawsuit against Con Ed for false arrest. During questioning, Frederick Eberhardt confessed to sending threatening letters and sending the sugar bomb. When I read that for the first time, I thought, I'm sure he did. Cops were not known for their soft pedal during the 1950s. They sent him to Bellevue for a month of observation and hoped they could find the evidence to convict him in the interim. The morning of November 28th, New York conducted its first post-war drill. If you are from the Midwest, you know what these are because the sirens are still tested the first Wednesday of every month and are as loud as any explosion. That evening also ended with an explosion. The lockers at Union Square blew their doors out into the station. Eberhardt was exonerated, but the bastards kept him in Bellevue for the whole month anyway. Actually, he didn't emerge from the hospital until the Ides of May, 1952. October 1951, the bomber sends a letter to the New York Herald Tribune. This would be the first of many. The letter warned that the washroom of the Paramount Theater would be hit. The Tribune contacted the police. The police searched all the restrooms. They finally found the bomb in the ventilation shaft in the men's room. The bomb was removed using a literal 15-foot pole, carried inside the envelope to Big Bertha. They moved the bomb to a vacant lot and dropped the bomb in a drum of motor oil. 
March 1952, another phone booth explodes, this one at the Port Authority bus terminal. December that year, another movie theater was hit. This time, the bomb was in one of the seats and a woman was sitting there. Amazingly, the explosion only scratched up the back of her legs. The same thing happened six months earlier at the same theater, but no one had been in the seat on that occasion. The bomber continued his campaign for years. His favorite phone booths and theater seats, but also station lockers and men's rooms. Somehow, no one was seriously injured until November of 1954. At a showing of White Christmas at Radio City Music Hall, two boys and two women were concussed and scratched up when a seat one of them was sitting in exploded. Thank goodness it didn't interrupt the show. Over 5,000 people and most of them didn't even know anything had happened. The ushers just reseated about 50 people and carried out the wounded. Please tell me you know I was being ironic. One man found a pipe bomb under the ledge in a phone booth and took it home. He didn't know what it was, but the length of pipe would come in handy, and before you smack him on the proverbial back of the head, in the 1950s, pipe bombs in general were pretty rare as bombs go. It's not like he could turn on Amazon and watch Speed anytime he wanted. He even asked a patrol cop who was close by, and the cop didn't know what it was either. So he carried it around in his pocket for the rest of the day and rode the bus home after work. He left it in the kitchen when he and his family went to bed. From incendiary, quote, The bomb exploded at 6 a.m. the next morning, while Dorney, his wife Betty, and their daughter slept upstairs. The hour hand had misfired at 6 p.m. the previous evening, an hour after Dorney arrived for his shift. The bomb went off 12 hours later when the hour hand hit 6 again. At first, Dorney thought a head-on collision in the street outside their home had caused the house to shake. He and Betty rushed downstairs to find the kitchen filled with acrid smoke. As the clouds cleared, they could see that the bomb had gouged a hole in the metal-topped kitchen table and blown a second hole in the ceiling. The blast embedded shrapnel in their walls and refrigerator, and it shattered their windows. It looks like an atomic bomb hit it, Betty told her husband. End quote. Well, here we are again. Where, you ask? We are right at that point where the police tell the public, Buckkiss. Every bombing... Every letter, the police send the message that the bomber is a publicity-seeking asshole and nothing more than an incompetent prankster. If they publicize the bombs, if they publicize that they were pipe bombs, that they were often inside a red sock, or that one of the places he hid the bombs was on the underside of a shelf in a phone booth, if they spread the word, perhaps Mr. Dorney wouldn't have taken that bomb home. In February of 1956, a bomb exploded in a toilet at the men's room at Penn Station. It happened while the septuagenarian porter was attempting to unclog the toilet. The shrapnel included chunks of porcelain that caused him to lose control of his ankle and toes. It took him two months in hospital to recover enough to be sent home, and he used a cane for the rest of his life. Seven other people were also injured. It was the aftermath of this bombing which finally convinced the department to give the public some details. In addition, the bomb squad and forensics lab head, Captain Finney, decided to try something a bit risky. Finney contacted the psychiatrist, James Brussel, who had done work with criminals and abnormal psychiatry. Finney hoped that Brussels could give them some insight into the bomber that would point them in the right direction. Anything to stop him from hurting or even killing with the next bomb. Russell took several hours looking at the case file, and then he came up with this. From damninteresting.com, 
quote, single man between 40 and 50 years old, introvert, unsocial but not antisocial, skilled mechanic, cunning, neat with tools, egotistical of mechanical skill, contemptuous of other people, resentful of criticism of his work, but probably conceals resentment, moral, honest, not interested in women, high school graduate, expert in civil or military ordinance, religious, might flare up violently at work when criticized, possible motive, discharge or reprimand, feels superior to critics, resentment keeps growing, present or former consolidated Edison worker, probably case of progressive paranoia, end quote. Russell also said that the bomber was a paranoid schizophrenic, probably a Slav, very possibly lived in southern Connecticut, lived with a woman who reminded him of his mother and would be wearing a buttoned-up double-breasted suit. Russell was also a Freudian, and some of his reasons why he chose these characteristics leave something to be desired. But the newspapers loved it. Trying to outdo each other is journalistic tradition. Seymour Berkson, the publisher of the journal American, and his assistant managing editor, Paul Schoenstein, came up with a plan. They would send a message to the bomber on the front page of the newspaper. This is what they decided on. To the mad bomber, prepared in cooperation with the police department. Give yourself up. For your own welfare and for that of the community, the time has come for you to reveal your identity. The New York Journal American guarantees that you will be protected from any illegal action and that you will get a fair trial. This newspaper is also willing to help you in two other ways. It will publish all the essential parts of your story as you may choose to make it public. It will give you the full chance to air whatever grievances you may have as the motive of your acts. We urge you to accept this offer now, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of the community. Time is running out on your prospects of remaining unapprehended. You can telephone the city editor of this newspaper at Cortland 71212, or you can go to any police station or even the policeman on the street and tell him who you are. In all cases, you will be given the benefits of our American system of justice. Give yourself up now. Then they waited. Meanwhile, the bomb squad was dealing with prank calls and tips upon tips of people calling in who think they know who the bomber is. They can't afford not to check them all out. One man acting suspiciously, reported by his neighbor, was forced to admit his marital extracurricular activities. Another was ruled out by his alibi. He was in the hospital on oxygen for several of the bombings. Dr. Brussel also continued to weigh in. He got calls from colleagues about their patients, and he sat in on interviews with suspects. The police were run ragged. Then, a letter landed on a desk at the Journal American. Quote, To the Journal American, I read your paper of December 26th. Where were you people when I was asking for help? Placing myself into custody would be stupid. Do not insult my intelligence. Bring the Con Edison to justice. Justice. Start working on Lehman Poletti Andrews. These gents know all. Among other things, the letter would allow police to narrow the search window. The three men cited, former Governor Herbert H. Lehman, former Lieutenant Governor Charles Poletti, and former State Industrial Commissioner Elmer Andrews, had all left office by 1942, suggesting that the bomber's grievance originated as a workers' compensation issue with Con Ed before that date. Then F.P. proposed what he called a truce. 
He pledged that he would not plant any more bombs until mid-January if the Journal American promised not to publish his letter until January 10th. The method of bombing will then be different. Before I am finished, the Con Edison Company will wish that they had brought to me in their teeth what they cheated me out of. My days on earth are numbered. Most of my adult life has been spent in bed. My one consolation is that I can strike back, even from my grave, for the dastardly acts against me. To prove that he would not be breaking his word if the police uncovered bombs during the truce, F.P. provided the locations of nine undiscovered bombs, including one in an Empire State Building phone booth that has not been found to this day. End quote. Now the newspaper had a problem. Not publishing the bomber's letter meant they would be sitting on an exclusive of magnificent proportions. But both the bomber and the police were telling Berkson not to print it. It was his call. They couldn't stop him. Yet Berkson knew that printing the letter would break the unstable bond developing between the paper and the police, not to mention probably making the bomber mad. Berkson decided the paper could not afford to print the letter. But they didn't stay completely silent. Three days over the course of the first week of 1957, back in the announcement section of the Journal American, the following notice was run, quote, We received your letter. We appreciate truce. What were you deprived of? We want to hear your views and help you. You will keep our word. Contact us the same way as previously. End quote. But did the bomber ever see this attempt to contact him? The next episode, we will talk about the bomber's communications, how he is finally caught, a judge with a God complex, and a sad view into the state of mental health in mid-century America. If you like the podcast or just this episode, press the like button. Subscribe so you won't miss new episodes and tell your friends. Stop into the Patreon or Insta because Musk has ruined Twitter. I am linking both of those in the show notes. If you don't like anything you've heard, why in the world did you keep listening to the end of the episode? You have the power to turn off the show. Bill Haley and his comments will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Oh,